You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. All right, well, good morning. How are we doing? Good to be with you. Uh, good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're not only going to finish Mark 5 this morning, we're actually going to finish the short three-week series within a series that we've titled Lord of All, where we've been examining the things over which Jesus is Lord, which is, spoiler alert, all, all things. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw the storms and the sea threaten the lives of the disciples, and Uh, Of course, Jesus calms the wind and the waves, a feat of which only God is capable. Last week, we saw the demons known as Legion as they bowed before the Lord Jesus in terror as he cast them out. This morning, we see him not only exhibit power over sickness uh, in an outcast woman that approaches him, but also even over death. Even death has uh, no authority or claim over him. Uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover. So it's a, a longer story this morning uh, with little time to cover it. So we're going to just skip the introductions and jump right into the flow of the story. Remember last week, Jesus traveled from the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee into modern-day Kersey, uh, known in the text as the land of the Gerasenes. And it was there that uh, Jesus cast out legion from the man, which led to the mass suicide of 2,000 pigs, which left the entire town in a panic. They were like, we don't understand what's going on. We don't feel comfortable here. Please leave, right? Verse 17, it says, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And so Jesus returns to the boat, but before returning, tells the man that he's just healed, verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that's how that passage sort of concludes. Jesus goes back uh, into the boat. The man goes into the Decapolis, the city. He tells everybody about the mercy that Jesus had on him. And this is the people marveled. And that really, that ending point is where we pick up this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Mark 5, read with me beginning in verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side... A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So after he's asked to leave the land of the Gerasenes, Jesus and his disciples get back into the boat. The text doesn't say this, but I'm sure they were not excited about this, right? They'd just gotten onto dry land. They nearly died in the boat. They're like, could we have not just spent a few days here, right? Jesus had to go and freak everyone out again, but alas, they push off. They go back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, likely to the city of Capernaum once more. And remember that Jesus, before leaving, had been teaching in parables, and there was a crowd gathered on the shore. He was standing in the boat preaching to them. Apparently, this crowd hasn't left. They're still there. He gets back to the other side. This is a great crowd gathered about him, and he's beside the sea. I mean, this is almost exactly where he left off when he left to the land of the Gerasenes. And it's here... While Jesus is teaching, that the story really begins. Verses 22 and 23. It says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. So one immediately interesting detail about this passage while we're in the neighborhood is the fact that Mark gives us the ruler's name. His name is Jairus. 
which is a pretty cool name, by the way. Ladies, uh, if you are pregnant with child and it's a boy and you're looking for a good, strong biblical name. I'm mean, just saying Jairus is on the table, right? We have enough Matthews and Marks. We need more Jairuses. Um, it's pretty unusual, actually, to give a proper name in Mark's gospel. Mark, generally speaking, leaves these details out. Uh, last week even, if you, if you notice, we had the demon-possessed man. We learned the name of the, the demons that possessed him. We never actually learned the man's name. He was just the man with an unclean spirit. In fact, there's only one other time in Mark's gospel where we get a specific proper name, and that doesn't come until Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Jesus heals a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. So you get Bartimaeus in 10, uh, you get Jairus here in chapter 5. These are the only two times you get proper names attached to miracle stories. Uh, I think perhaps the reason Mark includes his name, if you remember all the way back to week one, we talked about how Mark's gospel is very likely uh, being written at the dictation of Peter, remember, because Mark is not present in these events. Peter was, Peter discipled Mark, and history tells us that this gospel was often referred to as the memoirs of Peter. And being that Peter lived in Capernaum and spent a lot of time there and was a Jewish man, was probably pretty familiar with Jairus, being uh, that he had an important role in the community. Which brings up a good question. Who is Jairus? Verse 22 tells us he's one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, what does that even mean? History tells us at this time that rulers of the synagogue were not educated scribes or Pharisees, but uh, often lay people who were entrusted with authority by the elders of the community to oversee uh, the responsibilities that were connected to the synagogue. This is who Jairus is. He's likely a lay individual, not formally educated, uh, given authority and trusted by the elders, the, the, the kind of important people of the community to give general oversight to the synagogue. And his responsibilities would have included building maintenance, who loves that, uh, security, because there were crazy people back then as well, uh, the procuring of scrolls for scripture reading. So keep in mind at this time, uh, you didn't have a Bible. Bibles weren't a thing bound together nicely for you, for you to leave in the trunk of your car when you come to church. I'm not talking about anyone specifically. You had to procure individual scrolls of Scripture, which at this time was also relegated only to the Old Testament. And so Jairus, one of his responsibilities would have been to find, procure scrolls of the Old Testament so that uh, Scripture could be read during the worship service. He was also in charge of arranging the worship service. So he would have designated other people in the community to come up at various points throughout their uh, Sabbath worship to read the scripture, to pray perhaps, even teach from the scripture if they were qualified uh, to do so. So he's a pretty big deal in the community, right? He's, he's well-loved, he's well-respected. He comes to Jesus much in the same way that others have. Verse 22, at the very end, it says that he fell at his feet. He, he realizes, he recognizes that Jesus is not a normal person. He's capable of doing things that are just kind of unexplainable. And he understands that this may be my best shot for my little girl to be healed. And so he implores Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter, who is, verse 23 says, at the point of death, eschatos ake. She's at death's door. Right? She's sinking fast. Verse 24 tells us that his plea works. He's convincing enough. Jesus begins to follow him to his home. And, and it's at this point that 
The main mission is very clear in view. Go and heal Jairus' daughter. But there's this little interruption that takes place, right? A side quest, if you will. Uh, he is on his way to uh, heal the daughter of Jairus, and something else takes place while he's walking. Look at verses 24 through 28. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Just pause for a moment. I'm a big fan of, I've studied and translated much of the New Testament. I love the ESV. I think it's a great translation. It's why I preach from it. There are times when I read the ESV and I think to myself, whose decision was it to use the word thronged about? <laughs> raise your hand the last time you used thronged about. Don't raise it because you're lying. You didn't use it. I don't, I don't, they were pressing up against him. That's what it means. Verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So while walking to Jairus' home, there's a huge crowd following him. They're all pressing up against him. By the way, I thought about this week. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I, we love to attend concerts. Uh, we attended uh, a concert of the great late 90s, early 2000s band Bush, who still has it, by the way, uh, at, at uh, Doseki's Pavilion, or as I call it, Starplex, its proper name. Um, during the show, the main singer, Gavin Rossdale, came down like one of the main aisles all the way to the back. If you've ever been to this venue, there's a big lawn section. And he walked from one side of the lawn all the way to the other before coming back down to the other side of the stage. It took like 10 minutes. The band was playing, he was singing, and people were like all over trying to touch him and high-five him. And man, we just want to, you know, get their Facebook living, right? Like taking selfies with him and all that. And I thought about that as I was reading this, that Jesus has this sort of huge conglomerate of people that are just, they just want to be around him. They just want to be able to say, I, look, I high-fived Jesus. I touched him. I touched his shirt. I grabbed his arm. I was there today. Where were you? He's a little bit of a celebrity at this point. So he's walking, he's in the crowd, and a woman approaches Jesus as this is all happening. And it's not as clear in the English language, but there are seven descriptors in a row with the Greek, they're called participles in the Greek language, and they're sort of verbal nouns, and they, they are really, really helpful in communicating a lot of description within a small amount of space. And, and Mark gives these participles in a row to describe her condition and sort of build tension around her story. And so I want to walk through them quickly because I think it, it paints a picture really beautifully of who this woman is and why she's doing what she's doing. The first participle, it says, having a flow of blood is how you would literally translate this. This is undoubtedly uh, a reference to a menstrual cycle, all, although obviously irregular in nature, so much so that it was both physically painful and socially shameful for her. In fact, later in verse 29, he describes this condition. The ESV translates it disease. Uh, if you're reading NIV, it's going to say suffering. It's the Greek term mastix. It's a word that, uh, that, that is roughly translated as like a whip or lash or scourge or torment. So this condition was tormenting to her. She was suffering under this condition. I think the NIV gets this uh, really, really well. Uh, this would have been a very difficult condition to live with both physically painful and socially shameful. Now, why would it be socially shameful? Well, for a few reasons. The Torah, uh, the, the Greek, or sorry, the Hebrew first five books of the Bible, the book of the law for the Jewish people, prescribed women as unclean 
seven days following their monthly cycle. But if in that time frame, a woman protracted an infection during the cycle or the seven days following, she remained unclean during that infection period as well. Practically speaking, what it means is that anyone who would come into contact with her would be banished from the community until evening time. So you don't want to be around this woman, right? Like, I, I'm sorry, you're great, I love you, please don't come near me. Because I don't want to be outside the city gates until evening time. So this created some social tension, obviously. People wanted her to stay away. Beyond that, women were prohibited during this time frame to enter into the temple during their monthly cycle. So she was unable then to come to worship service. She was unable to hear the reading of scripture because again, you don't have the Bible app, right? You don't have an actual bound Bible. The only way you hear scripture read is in the worship service and she wasn't allowed in because of this condition. You, you couldn't be a part of the prayers, the community of prayers. You couldn't be a part of any kind of meaningful, spiritual or emotional engagement with people whatsoever. And for this woman, for 12 years, this had been going on. I mean, imagine the toll that this had taken on her spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically. 12 years as an outcast in the community. And so as you can imagine, she is set on trying to get help. And we get the second descriptive participle, having suffered from many doctors. So she had apparently sought the help of many medical professionals during this time, which by the way, how many of you can relate to this? Where you've gone to the doctor for something that you were experiencing and the answer they gave either wasn't an answer or it just wasn't satisfactory such that you needed to go get a second opinion or a third opinion, right? Yeah, it's very frustrated. Aaron over there with one arm, great. Um, yeah, it's, uh, pray for his arm. He, uh, yeah, she needs help and she's gone one after another uh, to as many doctors as she can to try to get this condition fixed. And it costs her, as you can imagine, a lot of money. Verse, or the, the, the third participle says, having exhausted all of her wealth. She spent all of her money on medical bills. There truly is nothing new under the sun, right? She, she's poor now because of medical debt. It's because there was no Obamacare. I'm kidding. It's a joke. We can kid around. It's fine. So, so not only is she not, she's suffering this condition, but she's seen many doctors and she spent all of her money on it. Fourth, the fourth participle, it says, having not improved, despite her every effort, she's not gotten any better. There's been no progress. Actually, there has been progress, just not good progress. The fifth participle says, having gotten worse. So she's worse off now than she was 12 years ago when it began. And then we get the sixth participle, having heard the reports of Jesus. So she's out of medical options at this point. She's obviously pretty desperate. She starts hearing the stories about this miracle worker who's done all these remarkable things, healed a paralytic man, uh, healed a person with leprosy. Uh, we're not really sure about him. I mean, there's, there's whispers that the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem are charging him as a false teacher. They think that Capernaum has been taken captive by his false teaching. Uh, she knows I'm probably going to get ridiculed by my family or people in the community for going to see him. But at this point, what does she have to lose, right? I mean, she has nothing else to lose. Uh, and so she's desperate. Final participle says, having come up behind Jesus. And, and there's some reason for this. This is intentional. It would have been highly inappropriate for her, for a variety of reasons, to just approach Jesus and try to touch him. Um, for her, not only as a woman, but an unclean woman, to publicly touch not only a man she wasn't married to, but a rabbi 
would have been like the ultimate no-no. These are social cues that cannot be overstated. In fact, if you're familiar with the, the, the woman at the well in John's gospel, if you remember, uh, she comes to the well midday because of her reputation. Uh, she's shamed. She doesn't want to be around other people. But also because at this point in the day, the likelihood of coming across a man at the well would have been very low. Uh, little does she know, she comes in contact with the Lord himself, and, and he speaks to her, and, and he engages with her in a way that, that was very, very unpopular during that time. These are the social cues, the context that's happening both in, in the woman in the well story and here in this story in Mark 5 as well. Women in the ancient world were not permitted to speak to men, much less touch them publicly. So she hears about Jesus, she sees the crowd, and she figures, look, there's so many people here, they're all focused on him, maybe I can blend in and sort of just sneak up behind him and touch him and no one will ever know what's happened and, and maybe I'll be healed. All of these details and these participles are building tension and leading up to the main verb of this passage. Mark is saying, this is how it's, it's, it's you could literally phrase this. And a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years and having endured many treatments from many doctors and having spent all of her money on them and not having benefited at all, but rather having gotten worse having heard about Jesus and having come behind him in the crowd, that woman, here's the verb, touched his garment. She didn't even need to touch his skin. Verse 28, she says, if I just touch his shirt, I'll be made well. She, she believed his authority over, over disease was so powerful that, that just merely touching his garment was enough. Now, now let me ask you, at, at this point, do you think that she believes he is Lord? I mean, at bare minimum, she believes he's something. I don't know that she's like fully convinced he's God in the flesh, but she's convinced he's not just a normal person. And then look at verse 29. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Instant, immediate healing. And then we get to verses 30 through 32, and, and we're going to really dig deep here uh, this morning. I hope you're ready. I hope you've drunk plenty of coffee, uh, because we're going to do some heavy lifting, theologically speaking. There are important details in this passage about the identity of Jesus that I want us to spend a little bit of time on and think deeply about. Verses 30 through 32 says, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So, so while he's walking, there's a great crowd following him. He's being pressed on from all sides. And yet in this moment, he perceives in himself, power has gone out from him. And he says, who touched me? And look how snarky his disciples are. So unhelpful. Verse 31. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you. And yet you say, who touched me? <laughs> Jesus is like, who touched me? And they're like, who isn't touching you at this point? What do you even mean? Now, if you keep reading, verse 32, and then he looked around to see who had done it. So, so the Lord perceives in himself that power had gone out, that someone has been healed. He asks, who touched me? And then he begins to scan the crowd to see if anyone fesses up. <laughs> this is a puzzling detail, if we're just being honest. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God, 
And yet here, someone touched him. He knows something has happened, but he doesn't seem to know who, and he has to ask. So how do we make sense of this? How can Jesus be God over all things and yet unaware of what's happened? How can he know all things and yet not know who touched him? We need to understand this because understand, getting Jesus is crucial. His identity is crucial to us. If we don't get Jesus right, we don't get any of it right. So we need to to get the identity of Jesus correct, biblically speaking. So there are some commentators um, that will suggest to you in this story that Jesus was sort of playing coy here, right? That he does know exactly who it was that touched him. He knows exactly what's happened. He's just sort of playing a game with the people. He doesn't want people to know that he knows, so he's acting like he doesn't know. Hey, who touched me? Wink, wink, right? (laughs) I understand the desire to interpret this passage this way. Because we want to be unapologetic about the fact that Jesus is God. But this is not how this passage reads. You have to read that into the text. I don't think that's what's going on at all. Jesus is God, unquestionably. I hope that's something that has become crystal clear to you in the the three weeks that we have been in this series so far. But he is also human at the same time. So, So understand, we can be unapologetic about the deity of Christ and also not have to make excuses about the humanity of Christ when those details come to the surface as well. Both are present in the Lord. Both are at play. So stay with me here for a moment. We're going to do a little historical theology because history has laid the foundation for how we understand rightly the identity of Jesus. This question about the deity and the humanity of Jesus is not a new one. It's a question that has been swirling around since the Lord rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And if we look back on church history, there are a lot of very godly, well-learned individuals who have spent a lot of time phrasing our statements of faith concerning who Jesus is in a very helpful way. So this topic of the deity and the humanity becomes particularly important in the 5th century uh, in what's called the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 431. And in this council, it was concluded that Jesus has both a human nature and a divine nature. So Jesus is one person uniting in himself two full, complete natures, a complete divine nature and a complete human nature. So by contrast, we in this room are fully human and we have one nature, a human nature. We do not have a divine nature or like a spark of divinity or whatever weird mystical things you have heard elsewhere. We are human beings with one singular, regular human nature. Jesus, like us, is fully human. And he does have a human nature. But unlike us, he has two natures. He also has the divine nature. And this is sort of clarified in a statement called the formula of Chalcedon. I'm just going to read it to you because it's very helpful, I think, in understanding these distinctions. They say that Jesus is recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, not Jesus, the God Jesus, and the human Jesus. One Jesus, 
one and the same son and only begotten God the word, Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's fully human, and at the very same time, he's fully divine. He's not half human and half divine. That's Hercules. That's a fairy tale. <laughs> Jesus is fully human. He's fully God at the same time. He has a complete human nature and a complete divine nature. Those unions or those natures brought into union are perfect, and they don't lose any of the qualities of either nature. So he doesn't become less human or less God as a result of this. So here's what this means, practically speaking. While his human nature is limited in knowledge, meaning that he can ask questions like, who touched me, and really not know, and identify the woman and grow in knowledge, at the very same time, his divine nature knows all things. Both are true within him. So practically, he can at the same time be totally unaware of the woman who touched him and also know every detail about that woman's life from start to finish. He can be both surprised and sovereign. And some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Derek, this is kind of confusing. Yeah, not everything is a TikTok video. <laughs> right? We're dealing with an eternally powerful creator and sustainer of all things. It's not easy to understand. It's glorious, but it's not easy. Jesus asks, who touched me? And, and notice her response, verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Again, notice the pattern. Jesus calms the storm. The disciples are afraid. Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. The townspeople are afraid. Jesus heals the woman. The woman is afraid. When you come into contact with divine authority that sort of slices through natural laws, it's kind of scary. It kind of gives you a moment to pause and go, who am I dealing with here? What is happening? But she, it says, bears the whole truth. She's totally honest. And look at his response, verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Just an amazing, beautiful, restorative moment where this woman who's been outcast, unloved, untouched for over a decade in a moment where nothing in the world could help her. One touch of the shirt of Jesus. She's fully healed. Now, while that's happening, the main mission actually comes back into focus. Look at verse 35. It says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, we don't know how long this whole episode with the bleeding woman took. Probably not too long. Regardless, too much time had passed. The little girl tragically dies. And the people come to tell Jairus, just send the teacher away at this point. There's nothing he can do. And Jesus overhears them. And in verse 36, he looks at Jairus and he says, do not fear, only believe. And then in verse 37, it says, he didn't allow anyone to follow him from this point forward. The whole crowd, he's like, stop, stay away, except for the inner three, Peter, James, and John. They get to the house and they find what you would expect in a home where someone has just died. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now it sounds legit, but hold that thought for a moment because it's not what it seems. Jesus says to them in verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Which seems kind of rude, right? He says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. 
And then notice in verse 40 how they respond to him. It says that they begin to laugh at him. And, and the language here conveys a mocking laugh. So how is it that they can go from weeping and wailing to mockingly laughing at the Lord in just a, a split second? It indicates that their mourning for this little girl was not genuine at all. This is all for show. Not for Jairus, he just lost his child. But others are doing what were common for that day. They're putting on a show of excessive mourning and weeping and wailing. Half the people at the house probably didn't even know Jairus or didn't even know his daughter. Couldn't care less, honestly, about them. But this is what you do when someone dies. You make a big deal about it to show everyone how sad we are for Jairus. And look at how Jesus responds, verse 40. But he put them all outside. He's like, get out of here with that nonsense. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Just as a side note, Jesus wants none of your empty sympathy. If I could just say that very clearly. If you are sympathizing with people in your life, but it's really just a show, it might fool others. It does not fool the Lord. And his response to that is, get out. Get out of my presence, because you're, you're, you're not in my presence when you do that. Then we get to verses 41 and 42. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately, there's that word again, overcome with amazement. Amazement. The Greek ekstasis, the word that we get our word ecstatic from. They were floored. How? I, I know she wasn't asleep. I know the Lord said she was asleep, but I know she was not asleep. She was dead. And he just got her up. In verse 43, it says, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. By the way, I just I love that detail. You've been dead, little girl. Get her a sandwich. Someone. <laughs> my, it's my Lord. And we've seen this before. We're going to continue to see this pattern again where, where he tells people, don't, don't talk about this. Don't tell anyone about this. It's not yet time for his identity to be fully unveiled. It will come to that time, but it's not right now. Right now, you keep your mouth shut. You don't tell anybody about what's just happened here. Now, there's a lot in this passage, as I said. I mean, we, we just walked through a whole lot of material. I, I want to end today, as I have the last two weeks, and just give you a couple of applications while we have uh, time to wrap this up. Here's the first one. Jesus is more interested in powerless pleas than in public piety. Jesus is more interested in powerless pleas than public piety. Who does Jesus respond to here with grace and kindness and healing? The two people in the story who come to him powerless over their circumstances, pleading with him for help. That is who Jesus is drawn to. That is who gets Jesus' attention. He's not interested in public piety and this big show of mourning for Jairus' daughter because it's just that. It's a show. It's all an act. And Jesus doesn't care about that one bit. It's all hollow. He tells him to get out. There is this idea, I think, within evangelicalism that Christians have developed that somehow we need to convey to other people with our outward performative actions how much we love the Lord as if we're going to convince them to believe in Jesus or something. Like we need to make the church look better 
as, the, as, as we worship with our hands and, oh, and this whole kind of performative thing. And by the way, if you worship with your hands up, great, as long as it's coming from a place of genuine love for the Lord and not look at me. But this idea that we need to put on an act to make the church look better, you're, you're not making the church look better, by the way. The church looks really bad. Regardless, we're broken sinners in need of a savior. We, we need to stop the nonsense of like, I'm sorry, we're not good people. We're not good people. That's the whole point of the gospel. We need Jesus. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his forgiveness. Jesus does not need us to put on an act to make people think that the church or he is worthy. He is worthy, regardless. He doesn't need you to manufacture prayers or spirituality so that others will be impressed by you. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. What did God say in Isaiah 1, 13 through 15? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure it, he says. These are all prescribed forms of worship. And Jesus is like, stop. He goes on in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. When you're doing this, I'm going to do this. When you make many prayers, he says, I will not listen. Listen, you can do all the right things that the Bible prescribes with the wrong heart. And God says, I want nothing to do with that. I'm not going to hear you or see you. Because when you do that, you're making it about you, not him. Now, should you mourn for others who lose people? Absolutely. Jesus himself says, blessed are the mourn, or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We should comfort others. But if your mourning is just for show, to look the part so that people think you're so caring, such a good Christian, God is going to say, I'm going to plug my ears to your prayers. I don't want to hear it. He is far more interested in the broken begging of his people and the powerless pleading of those who realize, apart from Jesus Christ, I have nothing. So that's the first one. Uh, here's the second <laughs> application. Jesus turns interruptions into opportunities. I love this one. It's easy to view interruptions in your life as a nuisance. I'm at that age where I just have no problem admitting it now. I hate being interrupted. There are certain times, certain contexts where it doesn't seem to bother me, but overwhelmingly, especially if I am like deep in thought, I, interruptions drive me crazy. I know that there are times in my life where the interruption is the mission. Jesus, think about this, is teaching to a crowd. Jairus interrupts him. Jairus' little girl becomes the mission. Jesus is on his way to heal the little girl. The bleeding woman touches him and is healed. She becomes the mission. When, when you are walking in God's will, interruptions often can become opportunities for the gospel to come on full display. Now, you live in a fallen world. Sometimes interruptions are simply that. They're just interruptions. But I think it's a good question to evaluate right now in your life. How many of you are experiencing an interruption in some major aspect of your life? Rather than being annoyed by it immediately, maybe you can be annoyed by it in a moment. But before that, ask the Lord what he would have you do in that interruption. It might be 
follow me, it might be that you were already off course and the interruption is to get you back on track. Interruptions become opportunities when we follow Jesus and we stay within God's will. I hope that the last three weeks have broadened your vision of who Jesus is. That he is God in the flesh. That he is Lord over all things and yet human in every way conceivable. How we think about Jesus, how we speak about him, how we worship him, how we describe him, how we proclaim him, all of this stuff matters. We gotta get it right. We have to get it right. I can't think of anything more important to think deeply about than the identity of the Lord himself. And this is not the last time this stuff is going to come up. We're going to continue through Mark's gospel. We're going to see more and more of this as we saw more of it prior to coming to these passages. But what a joy it is to look specifically at the lordship of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and at the same time, the empathy and the relatability of Jesus as a human. There is truly no one like him. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning, God, for another view of deity and humanity embodied into the one person. We stand in awe of who you are and, and, and what you accomplish through broken people, the way that you continuously surprise us by by taking actions or doing things that we don't expect, but, but that when we see them come to pass, realize it was like the best thing that could have happened. So God, give us faith. Give us greater faith to trust you, especially when interruptions occur in our lives, that we might not be immediately annoyed, but look for opportunities to see the gospel flourish in those moments, that maybe we were the ones off track and the interruption was just meant to get us back on board. Pray for those here this morning who don't know Jesus as Savior. I pray that, that you would, by the, the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, just break their hearts this morning, that they would see him for who he truly is, beautiful and powerful, and confess him as Lord over their lives. How we love you, we thank you in the powerful name that is above every name. Amen. Amen. If I could just quickly uh, just fill you in on, on some details concerning the month of March. Uh, March, we are going to be taking a break from the Gospel of Mark. We have five weeks in a row that are going to be really outstanding, and I want to pump you up and invite many friends, and then invite them to other services because there's not much space in here. Um, <laughs> next week, we are going to get to hear from Brad Marvin, our family minister. Yeah, and uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, the following week, March 10th, is Mission Sunday. We're going to have some compassion packets. Uh, Chris is going to be talking about the various mission opportunities that we as a church are engaged in. Uh, the 17th, that Sunday, we're going to invite Gary Ingram to preach. He's preached here before. He and I are going to do kind of a tag team thing where I'll come up at the end and make some applications. The following two Sundays, uh, March 24th and March 31st, believe it or not, you blink and this happens, is Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. So we're, it's like we're here. Super Bowl Sunday is right around the corner. Um, 
That's what it's all about. And we do have a Good Friday service as well that we're going to be doing. So lots of things to be excited about, lots of things to look forward to. And then when we get back into April, we'll jump right back into Mark chapter 6 and continue along the way. Thank you for being here this morning. God bless you. Go enjoy that beautiful day. It's wonderful out there. We'll see you.